The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 25 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 23, Once an Avenger. This issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by John Romita, and letters by Sherry Gale. And it comes to us in December of 1965. That's right, folks, we have hit episode number 25. 25 issues down and several hundred more to go. As I mentioned, the inks on this book are done by John Romita, and that is John Romita Sr., father of current comic artist John Romita Jr. Romita Sr. is most known for his work on Amazing Spider-Man, where he was the artist who took over from Steve Ditko. And he's actually, he's in general well-known, but specifically he's done some very famous spider-man images there are several green goblin covers there's the very well-known panel of spider-man walking away from his spider suit stuffed into a trash can probably the most famous is the panel of mary jane watson saying face it tiger you just hit the jackpot and that is john romita's art one of the more amusing things that i have found though is if you take a look at john romita jr's art it is far more influenced by jack kirby's work than it is his father's I mean, let's face it, as fantastic as Ramita Sr. is, when you're working next to Jack Kirby, everybody takes a backseat there. Speaking of Jack Kirby, Jack is also responsible for this month's cover. Ramita Sr. does the inks, and it's a really great cover. It is giant looming Kang behind the Avengers. I really like the coloring on Kang. It's obviously not Kang's normal coloring, but it just looks really cool. I like the space scene behind Kang. All in all, it's a really cool cover. This is the first use of half of a common phrase the Avengers will come to have. Once an Avenger, always an Avenger. And it's very descriptive of the issue as we'll see going forward. Getting into the issue proper, the change in inkers, at least to me, is immediately apparent. Where Wally Wood was super complimentary and enhancing of Don Heck's already detailed style. Ramita's style is significantly less detail-oriented. It's much bolder, much cleaner, and it's just got a very different feel. I really like this first panel, especially. Hawkeye looks really cool, almost like a space ghost, like an Alex Toth kind of style to him with the heavy lines, the very bold look. So as we find the Avengers, we have... Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch all discussing the departure of Captain America from the end of last issue. Hawkeye's really trying to say, it's not my fault, he left, it's his deal. Scarlet Witch says, no, but, you know, you really didn't help here. Like we've seen, Hawkeye has been pushing Cap's buttons for quite a while, and he really doesn't want to own up to the fact that he was at any way involved in Cap's decision to leave. But Scarlet Witch calls him out on his nonsense. And Scarlet Witch also owns up to the fact that she's going to miss Cap. As we've seen, Wanda does have a little bit of an inkling of romantic feelings towards Cap. She, again, admits to that, to the extent it exists. Also, she admits to 
missing the eye candy a little bit. She straight up says, how I miss the sight of him working out in our private gymnasium. Look, it goes both ways. You can have attractive male characters and attractive female characters in comics, as it should be. Now, while Scarlet Witch is missing Captain America, we find Steve off somewhere in the country, it looks like, at a training camp for a professional boxing champion. And Cap is offering his services as a sparring partner. Unfortunately, the champ's trainers, you know, don't see it. Cap's a fairly compact kind of guy, and the trainers are both real big muscle-bound kind of guys. I'll be honest, two out of the three of them that we see here look like they should be mafia goons. I don't exactly know why that is, but if you change their clothes a little bit, these are definitely goon-type characters we have seen as henchmen in, in previous issues. But Cap knocks them to the ground pretty quick, really demonstrates that he's up to the challenge of being the sparring partner for the champ. As we see in a couple of panels here of them actually sparring, Cap has some legitimate pointers for the champ in terms of his footwork and things like that. You know, he's good, but he could be better. The whole sequence here does kind of interest me a little bit. I'm trying to figure out why Cap decides to be the sparring partner for a professional boxer. I get that Cap enjoys the physicality of something like boxing, but Cap has never struck me as the type who is really into actual fighting outside of combat and outside of, you know, the general superhero role. That's always struck me as kind of something that's antithetical to the idea of Captain America. Yes, he stands up for himself and stands up for the little guy. So in that regard, Cap is a fighter, but I've always felt that Cap abstains from violence for violence's sake. In here, Cap talks about being useful again and how, how nice that is, but it really strikes me as more that Cap is looking for an excuse to blow off some frustrations and to hide from reality for a little while. Everything that's been going on lately and his leaving the Avengers isn't sitting real well with Cap, but he doesn't want to deal with it. He leaves New York City, goes up to Westchester, and is able to just physically blow off some steam, which I think we can all relate to, but I also think Cap is deluding himself a little bit here in thinking that doing something like this has purpose. While Cap has left the Avengers and is off in Westchester, the Avengers and Cap are all being watched very closely by none other than one of my favorite villains, Kang the Conqueror! Mostly because it's a lot of fun to say Kang the Conqueror! Also, it's hard not to enjoy a time-traveling despot who manages to conquer the entire planet in the year 4000 and just constantly gets his butt kicked by a bunch of schmucks in the 20th century. At any rate, Kang is observing the Avengers and has decided that because Captain America has left the Avengers, they are weaker without him, that now is an opportune time to strike. Kang also kind of lets slip a little bit here that things aren't quite as good in the year 4000 as he would like us to believe. He's not as secure. I also like to think here that this is only, you know, maybe a couple of days after Kang's last appearance in Avengers number 11. For us, it's been almost a year since Kang showed up. It's been 12 issues. But I like to think that because Kang is in the future and watching the past, he can kind of cherry pick the points at which he would like to attack. Things didn't go very well in Avengers number 11, so he goes off and sits and thinks for a couple days and comes up with a new plan and then immediately goes and implements it because what does time matter to him? He's a master time traveler. I don't know if that's necessarily a true statement in terms of when in the timeline this happens. 
Kang's timeline is one of the most messed up things in all of Marvel continuity. Probably one of the most messed up things in all of comics continuity. There's a few things that are probably a little bit higher. Pre-Crisis DC is rough. Cable from X-Men comics, one of my favorite characters, but that's the black hole in which continuity just disappears and is never seen again, is Cable. So Kang's not quite that bad. I know that somewhere it is published an actual chronology of Kang that was printed, I think, sometime in the late 80s that I have been on the lookout for and have not found yet, but I will find it, and eventually we will have a conversation about it. So I just go with my own head chronology here. Kang decides that this is the time he's going to attack the Avengers, and he does so by sending back in time this ship disguised as an additional floor to Avengers Mansion. Sets it down on top of the mansion and immediately starts to bombard Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch with some kind of blast. It's not really clear. They don't actually say what it is. Their warning siren goes off. They start to investigate, and something tries to blast Hawkeye down the stairs. We have a little bit of nice Kirby crackle going on and things like that. So it's, it's something. It's not really clear what. So the Avengers rush up the stairs and through the door into what turns out to be another room, only as soon as they're inside the room, Scarlet Witch realizes, hey, this door usually leads to the roof. And at that point, Kang springs his trap. First, he attempts to kind of blind and disorientate the Avengers. Hawkeye manages to take care of that with a well-placed arrow shot. And then Kang begins to remove all the oxygen from the room. So they all start to pass out. Hawkeye again attempts to free them with another arrow. This time, the interior defenses of the room take care of the arrow. Quicksilver makes an attempt to escape. But in the end, all three of the Avengers have passed out. And we see an image of Kang behind them talking about how it would be easy to kill all of them. But I'm not done with them yet. I've got other plans. A couple of issues here. One is how the Avengers don't realize that the door they ran through should have gone to the roof. They've been living in this mansion for like six months now. I've lived in houses less than six months and understood where all the doors in the house led. Even given that it's a mansion, it, six months, you, you should know that when you go through the door that you think leads to the roof, one should find themselves on the roof. And if one doesn't see the roof once they open the door, I'm thinking I wouldn't run through it. Of course, you know, with that logic, I probably would never end up going through a wardrobe and ending up in Narnia, much to my disappointment, but I'll get over it and I won't be kidnapped by Kang the Conqueror. Second problem here is Marvel villains have this predilection for overly complicated plans. And especially in this era, when they execute these overly complicated plans, there is almost some kind of subconscious prohibition against them succeeding. If Kang really wanted the Avengers dead so he could go conquer the 20th century, he has them dead to rights right here. I mean, he could just let the oxygen stay out of the room and they suffocate. End of story. No more Avengers. But instead, he decides he's going to take them back to the year 4000 and then kill them in a very overly complicated manner. Of course, overly complicated manner, traveling to the future, allows the Avengers to overcome Kang. That's no secret that that's how this is going to end up. It's really a question of how they're going to do it and what they're going to do and whatnot. So Kang could easily succeed, but he sets himself up in such a manner that things are going to go badly for him. And he's not the only Marvel villain to do that. In preparations for another project, I've been reading a lot of the Infinity Gauntlet, and Infinity Gems, 
stories. Thanos has the same problem that he he's only beat by the Avengers when he subconsciously doesn't want to win when he feels he's unworthy or something like that. Kang's doing the same thing here only to a lesser extent. Thanos because he's Thanos and it's the 90s and all of that nonsense. Thanos dials it to 11. Thanos goes to 11. Now speaking of Thanos at this point in the story we get Kang interacting with Princess Ravona who is the princess of the last remaining effectively free principality in Kang's year 4000 Earth. But it's free only because Kang allows it to be free, because Kang has fallen madly in love with Ravona, and he allows her to stay in power. There's kind of a delicate balance here. Kang allows her to remain in power because Kang wants to marry her, so he doesn't want to just crush her principality under his foot but because she has been unwilling to wed him so far we will find out a little bit here kang's troops are ready and standing by to overrun the city when i said speaking of thanos it's a very similar relationship to thanos and death in the case of thanos and death death obviously has more power in the relationship until Thanos has the Infinity Gauntlet. But it's the same kind of idea that Kang is willing to do anything at this point for Ravonna. This incredibly powerful conqueror is effectively willingly subservient to Ravonna because of his love for her, much in the way Thanos is completely subservient, even when he has the Infinity Gauntlet, to death because of his love for death. There's the old saying that all stories have been told. This is just this is another example of that. Back in the good old 20th century, we see Captain America once again sparring with the champ. Only as the match is going on, Captain America hears a radio announcement that the Avengers have gone missing and they suspect that foul play has been involved. Now, this obviously distracts Cap, so he takes a pretty good punch only to get up and in one shot lay out the champ because, you know, he's Captain America. And Cap decides that, hey, I've got to go figure out what's going on with the Avengers. Meanwhile, the Avengers find themselves in very large bell jars, effectively, what look like bell jars. They're some kind of containment vessels that Kang has developed for holding the Avengers. In fact, Hawkeye even points out that he is so sure of himself, because at this point the Avengers don't actually realize it's Kang, and Hawkeye says, well, whoever he is, he's pretty sure of himself. He didn't even take away my bow. And that's a very good point. Kang doesn't take away Hawkeye's bow. And that's really kind of a poor idea on Kang's part. Obviously, he can't take away Scarlet Witch's powers or Quicksilver's powers because they're mutants and it's part of their genetic makeup. But he probably should have disarmed Hawkeye. Now, speaking of Scarlet Witch's powers, Hawkeye and Quicksilver can't manage to get themselves free. But Scarlet Witch focuses all of her hex powers on this containment vessel and manages to get it to shatter. And we get this really cool, dazzly eye effect right before Scarlet Witch uses her powers. You gotta look a little closely on it. At first I thought it was like some kind of glitch on my computer, but no, it's definitely an intentional thing going on with Scarlet Witch's eyes, and I, I really dig it. But Scarlet Witch manages to free herself and then frees her brother and Hawkeye, this time using the controls, because using her hex powers to this extent has thoroughly exhausted her physically. And this is kind of cool because it's the first time we've seen a real limit to Scarlet Witch's powers in that using them to the extreme measure actually causes this kind of physical exhaustion. Obviously, as time goes on, Scarlet Witch's powers will just amp up until we get to House of M, 
and the infamous No More Mutants, at which point Scarlet Witch is basically able to manipulate the entirety of reality. Kind of a terrifying thought, especially given Scarlet Witch's questionable mental health status at the time. And by questionable, I mean she has gone insane. But now that the Avengers are free, they start making their way through Kang's base. And remember how I said Kang probably should have taken away Hawkeye's bow? Well, just as Kang's thugs are about to engage with the Avengers, Hawkeye fires off three arrows, and the Avengers are able to swing away to freedom for the moment. Now, I do love there is a great floating, angry, screaming Kang head. You don't really see him yelling, but the speech bubble is very yelling. A giant Kang head, though, talking to the Avengers. Talking head, that's always fun. Kind of a joke, oh, you know, we just have talking head panels. This is literally a panel of just a head talking. There is no body attached to it, it is a disembodied Kang head. However, as the Avengers are swinging themselves to freedom, they are sucked up into a fan stuck against a large metal grate. Now, Hawkeye, thinking quickly, takes one of his blast arrows, even though he can't shoot it at the fan that's pulling on him. He sticks it through the grate and lets the fan pull the blast arrow into itself and destroy the fan. I love that creative use of the arrows because, you know, Hawkeye can be very one note when it comes to his abilities because all he does is shoot arrows. Captain America frequently refers to him as Robin Hood as kind of a derisive term, especially when he refers to Cap as Winghead. But the reality is, you know, his abilities really aren't all that much different than Robin Hood. So the fact that Hawkeye is able to think on his feet and use his arrows in as creative a way as is available to him really helps to flush out the character a little bit and make them a little bit more versatile and not so frequently redundant. Part of Kang's justification for bringing the Avengers into the future is either they will join him or he will destroy them. And either way, it will be something to impress Ravona. Either I have taken these heroes and I have pressed them into my service, or I have taken the mightiest heroes of the 20th century and I have crushed them beneath my heel. One of those two, but either way, it's supposed to be impressive towards Ravona. Well, after they destroy the fan, the Avengers are kind of making Kang look bad, so he decides to take personal control of the attack on the Avengers, only it's kind of lame because he does so from his control room. He doesn't actually go out and get his hands dirty at this point. He will in a little bit, but he's basically just pushing buttons and pulling levers in this control room in an attempt to defeat the Avengers. Not really that impressive. I can't imagine Ravona being either impressed or terrified at these thoughts. Now, he does manage to stop two of the three Avengers. He manages to catch Scarlet Witch and Hawkeye in what is effectively a paralysis beam or series of paralysis beams. Quicksilver, however, is fast enough that he is able to outrun these beams and is heading for Kang's control room. Right as this is happening, Kang, who is apparently still monitoring the 20th century for some odd reason, I don't really understand why, Kang sees Captain America shouting at Kang. Cap has apparently used a device called the Recreator, which allows him to see a short period into the past and determine what events have just occurred in a particular area. So Cap uses this to figure out that Kang is the one responsible for taking the Avengers. Cap is basically calling Kang out. Now, something fun here about the Recreator there is an editorial note that says, we used this gadget issues ago, but if you can remember when, you're better than we are. It says Smiley, which I assume is Smiling Stanley. 
and smile and stand like Jack the King Kirby. In Kang's Thought Bubble, he also mentions that it is an instrument that Iron Man once used. Digging a little deeper into this one, uh, this comes out of the official Marvel Index to the Avengers, issue number one. The recreator actually never employed by Iron Man. It is last seen in Journey into Mystery number 105, where Thor takes the device from the Cobra and Mr. Hyde and delivers it to the Avengers after Journey into Mystery 106. Iron Man never used this device up to this date. It's actually from a couple of issues of Thor. Now, as a result of Captain America calling out Kang and calling him a coward, Kang is basically shamed by Ravona because she happens to be nearby. And she said, will the conqueror of vast galaxies let such a challenge go unheeded? Again, because Kang is trying to impress Ravona, he really has no choice but to draw Cap into the future, much in the way he drew the Avengers into the, f the future. This is a terrible idea! Especially now, two of the three Avengers that are in the future are helpless. And Quicksilver stands absolutely no chance of defeating Kang. I'm not bagging on Quicksilver, but Kang is one of the strongest villains the Avengers are going to face, period. Quicksilver is very good at what he does, but what he does is fairly limited. Not really a match for the technology at Kang's disposal. But because Kang is so in love with Ravona, and because he wants to impress her so badly, Kang acquiesces to this stupid desire of hers to bring Cap to the future. As we'll see, it doesn't really work out in Kang's favor. We also see a total cop-out here on Stanley's part. In the panel in which Captain America is pulled into the future, instead of an actual caption, there is a box that says, you can write your own caption for this one. Any reader who can't guess what is happening just isn't a true Marvelite. My immediate response to that is, thanks for half-assing it, Stan. Really appreciate it. But now that Captain America is in the future, he quickly teams up with Quicksilver, and the pair of them take down a number of Kang's guards with relative ease. Although Kang has superior technology and weapons and whatnot, he tends to hold on to the good stuff for himself. His guards really just have some heavy armor and some high-tech guns, which aren't all that different than the armor and guns that the Avengers have been facing lately. So it's not all that difficult for the Avengers to deal with. Finally, we see that Kang is going to actually take a personal involvement in this fight. And he faces off with Captain America and Quicksilver, you know, man to man. He's actually fighting them instead of just pulling levers and stuff from his control room. So the first thing that happens, which I had to stop for a moment because I was laughing so hard, is that Quicksilver takes a full speed charge at Kang only to hit Kang's force shield and be cartoon style, full spread eagle bounced off of it. I absolutely love it because A, it's so cartoonish and it's so funny, but it also demonstrates, like I was just talking about, how ineffective the Avengers are against Kang. At least a direct assault is not going to work here. Not only is it not going to work from Quicksilver, it's not going to work from Captain America because as Cap throws his shield at Kang, Kang takes the shield and makes it massive and then throws it back at Captain America. So not only has Kang removed Cap's greatest weapon, again, or at least his most readily available, most obvious weapon, he has turned it against Cap 
And now it's something that he himself has to deal with. After this, Quicksilver manages to harass Kang for a little bit. Kang quickly uses more of his abilities, which is this one's kind of a new one. It's a Spectro Wave, which basically reaches out and hits everything around him. And that manages to knock Quicksilver low pretty quickly. Now, at this point, we back up from the battle a little bit. And we see that Ravona and her father have been watching this whole thing. Ravona's father is trying to convince her that she has to marry Kang for the good of her people. Look how invincible Kang is. Look how courageous he is. Ravona's not convinced, but she's really kind of fighting kind of a losing battle here. Right? She understands that Kang is not anywhere near as strong as he claims he is, but everyone outside thinks Kang is much stronger, and so they are pressuring her to acquiesce to his demands. Kang has an army outside of Ravona's city, so if she doesn't, Kang is just going to run the city right over. You know, her father is pressing her to make a decision for the kingdom and for the people. Ravona is trying to resist because she knows how wrong everyone else is about Kang, but at the same time, it's hard not to give in to that kind of outside pressure. While these conversations are going on, apparently Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch have managed to free themselves and are now ready to engage with Kang, in addition to Captain America and Quicksilver who are regaining their bearings. So now it is a full-on Avengers team against Kang. This emboldens Ravona. In fact, it even emboldens her father a little bit. He says, the fates have been kind. Perhaps all is not yet lost. And Ravona responds, now it is Kang who must make the decision. And Kang's decision is to send up a signal and tell his troops to begin assaulting the city. Kang is ready to face off the Avengers, but as that is going on, Kang's troops are rolling in with their tanks and their weapons. And that's where we will end this issue. Obviously, next issue is going to pick up pretty much where we left off here. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've got a hard time arguing with more Kang, you know. So overall, we are seeing the reversal of the recent Cap-centric trend. This issue is really focused on the other three Avengers, Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye, and Quicksilver, at least to a point. It's not something I've, I have mentioned as we were talking through the issue, but consistently throughout the issue, in their dialogue, they keep bringing up Captain America and different lessons that Cap has told them. Obviously, the implication here is that the rest of the team is realizing how much they need and really want Cap as their leader. The end goal, is, as I see it, is that they will choose Captain America as their leader instead of having him forced upon them. A group is much more willing to accept a leader that they have chosen rather than one that has been forced on them. We also get to see that they're learning to lean on one another a little bit more, discovering that they have an important part to play in the team's survival, especially in this particular situation. Everyone is doing something, and that's really important, I think, in a team book. The book itself here is also really exploring the idea of characters not being willing to accept reality. In the very beginning, Hawkeye doesn't want to accept responsibility for his role in Captain America leaving the team. As the issue goes on, Hawkeye comes to realize that they probably do need Cap. Cap himself, when he leaves the Avengers, deludes himself into thinking that helping train the champ is still something meaningful. It's really not until the Avengers are reported missing that he is at all forced to confront the situation. And then finally, Kang is slightly more willing to admit that things aren't as rosy as they appear on the outside, but at the same time, he is unwilling to accept the idea that he isn't in complete control of the situation. 
I'm having a hard time here. I want to marry Ravona. I'm going to make that happen through this particular scenario, and I have it under my complete control. The idea of bringing the Avengers into the future only makes the situation worse and more unpredictable for Kang. He's forced to take a drastic measure that we are all well aware he doesn't want to take, but he does so just so he can save face. On the art side of things, I would love to have seen John Romita Sr. work on Avengers more. As I mentioned, this is the only Avengers issue we're going to see him work on. I've really enjoyed it. He brings a slightly different aesthetic to the book. The penciler on a book is probably the biggest driver behind the look of the art, but the inker has a significant influence. And I think we've seen that over the last few issues where we've gone from our standard Dick Ayers as the anchor to Wally Wood and now to John Romita. Although it's all Don Heck art all the way through, the inks give a very different feel to the book. I mean, let's be honest. We have now seen two of the biggest names of comics of this era inking this book. I mean, Don Heck does a really good job on pencils, and in general, Dick Ayers does a good job on inks. But now we've also seen inks done by two of the best artists in comics. And it gives the book a very different feel. This kind of goes back to my original thoughts on Jack Kirby and his art, because when I first started reading Jack Kirby work, it was in X-Men. And the first couple of Jack Kirby X-Men issues are awful, not because of Jack's art, but because of the inks. The inks are really bad. After a few issues, when the inker changed, so they went, wow, where did this come from? I realized this is still Jack Kirby. This is vastly different. And that's the point at which I realized how much inkers actually play a role in how an image looks in the book. It's not just the pencils that the inkers have a significant contribution to make to the overall product. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we will be returning to the future for some more Kang the Conqueror with Avengers number 24 from the Ashes of Defeat. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. You ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.